Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter 13. For the last number of weeks, if you haven't been around Central before, um, we're just kind of working through a, a few verses at a time through the Gospel of John. This is our third installment in the Gospel of John. We're, we're going through a bunch of chapters over the course of a few months. Then we're going to take another break or two, and then we're going to get into the fourth installment of the Gospel of John, and we're going to finish out this, this Gospel we've been working on for a couple of years now. Rodney Stark is an author, uh, scholar, who in his book, The Rise of Christianity, argues that some of the marked growth of the church in the early centuries can be attributed to care and compassion Christians showed for the sick. He tracks increased conversion rates during three plagues. So when the church, when there was this marked growth in the church, um, it was during the time of plagues. During um, the Antonine plague in the second century, the Cyprian plague in the third century, and the Justinian plague in the sixth century, well, the norm was to abandon the sick, Christians took them in. What happened during all three of these plagues, um, one more famous than the others, but, but in all of the plagues, what happened was this. The norm in, um, in Roman society at that time was that when people had this plague, when they started to get sick, is that their families, their loved ones, would push them out into the street and abandon them to die. The pattern of the church at that time, Christians, was to go out into the streets to gather up the sick and to bring them home. And that revolutionized culture. Because when everyone else was turning away from the sick, the Christians were turning to them, caring for their needs, burying them, caring for them. Um, it, and that's what took place. Tertullian, Tertullian a, a, an early church father, um, used the phrase, see how they love one another, when he referred to the Christian church and how the culture around them viewed it. The culture was stunned by the love the church had for one another. They couldn't believe it. It was so revolutionary. They looked in at the church and marveled. See how they love one another. And so this morning we are looking at a passage in Scripture that includes Jesus' command where he says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And so we are going to look at that this morning. We're going to take a look at that. Now, what I want us to recognize from the get-go is we're looking specifically at Christians loving each other well, and by doing that well, being very distinct and compelling to the culture around them. So we're going to talk about that, but I don't want you to ignore the fact in all kinds of other places in the, in the, the, the narrative of Scripture do we see that, that we are also called to love all. So we're not negating that for the other. We're just saying that specifically this morning, we're looking at Christ's call for the church to love one another. As Paul put it in Galatians 6.10, he said, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That there's a distinction to be made that we recognize, yes, we are to love all, but there is a special love that the church are to show one another. And so that's what we're going to dig into. Why don't I pray? And then we will work through this text together. God, thank you for grace. Thank you that when we um, gather as a church, you so meet us in it because you, you love for your church gathered um, to celebrate you, to worship together, to praise you for all that you've done. And, and we use that time, this time that way. Lord, we want to reflect on your goodness to us all week long. And then that just sort of boils over into praise and thanksgiving corporately together on a Sunday. And then we spill out again to, uh, to strive to live for you and to, uh, to, to, to bring you into all that we do. Lord, we need your strength for that. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning and this time in your word would be uh, soothing, would be energizing, would be encouraging, and would... Um, build us up in the faith so that, Lord, we would have the strength um, to persevere and to continue to live for you. Would you speak this morning? Your word, Lord. Help me not get in the way, but help your word stand, your truth to go out. And that's what we pray for. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's pick it up in verse 18, and we have to do some work through the verses of the text, and then we'll land ultimately in this passage that calls us to love one another. In verse 18, Jesus begins by saying, I am not speaking of all of you. Let's just remember what we did last week. We, we talked about serving one another because Jesus had, had washed his disciples' feet, which was a lowly, lowly job. And Jesus, their leader, kneels down and washes their feet, takes the posture of a servant and washes their feet, serves them, and calls the church to serve one another. Just as I've washed your feet, you're to wash one another's feet. Jesus said. And so that's where it landed. And, and then he, he concludes by saying, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now he picks up and says, I am not speaking of all of you. Not all of you will be blessed and do them. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Let's jump down to verse 21 just to carry on with this theme of his betrayer. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's saying to, this, to his group of 12 disciples in the upper room, the Passover meal called the last, that we refer to as the Last Supper. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, we believe that to be the gospel writer John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So Peter's like, John, you do it. I always look foolish, you. So he motions to John, ask him, ask him who it is. Simon Peter motions to John to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John in his humility, just doesn't label himself as like, the, the, the disciple Jesus loved, which is me, by the way. He never talks that way. He doesn't refer to himself, but we know it to be him. So that disciple, it's John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's stop there. Let's talk about Judas for a little bit here. We recognize that Jesus, what he says here, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He goes on to quote Psalm 41, a psalm of David, which says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. To lift one's heel against someone is really a, a means to attack someone when they're unprepared and under the pretense of friendship. You were at my table. I didn't see it coming. That was the scenario for David when he wrote Psalm 41. David was betrayed by someone who shared bread with him. And we, we know David to be, if you, you read the scriptures enough, you see that there's this theme where, where David is a type. He's a, he's a, a Christological figure. Of, of Jesus is coming, and, and David is this, this lesser picture of the greater king. He's a great king, but a greater king is coming. And there's all these references over and over again of David and the one who would come in the line of David who would be even greater. And so that's happening here where where. Jesus quotes David and makes it apparently clear that this is being fulfilled. Now, we need to know that in the Near Eastern culture, to betray someone, it's obviously a wicked thing, but in this culture, to betray someone you shared bread with was especially heinous because you shared bread with people you considered friends or when they, if they weren't friends when you sat down at the table, when you sit at the table and have a meal together, now there is an intimacy in relationship. That was, that was a big deal. And so it was a big deal for David, and of course it's an even bigger deal when Judas goes and will betray Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by his friend, someone close to him, Judas. Now, it goes on to say that Satan entered him, and we could, we could summarize exactly, specifically all that we're talking about here, but simply put, Judas' sin and ungodliness which had been going on for a while. We already noted a few weeks ago that, that Judas was dipping into the money bag. He, was the, he carried the money bag for Jesus' itinerant ministry, and Judas would dip in and buy things for himself, use it for himself. He was a crooked man. 
And his sin and ungodliness and clearly his hardness of heart reaches a climax here. And Satan, in this moment when Jesus passes him a morsel of bread, is possessed and taken control of by Satan. Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And after receiving the morsel of bread, we see that Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Now, we're not going to betray Jesus, uh, Jesus like Judas did. And yet all of us are capable of betrayal. All of us are. All of us could. Some of us have flat out rejected Jesus. We're here this morning reluctantly, or, or we just know that there, there are many who flat out reject Jesus. There's this flat rejection, right? They will not accept him. But inside the church, maybe it's a little more selective than that. There's a selective rejection that we can have of Jesus. We can, we can say, yeah, sure, sure I, I give intellectual assent. Jesus is Lord. Yes, I want, I'm a Christian. But meanwhile, over here in compartments of our lives, we're, not, we're, we're betraying Jesus because we're, we're not handing the entirety of our lives over. We say, Lord, I don't like the Christian ethic about this. I like the world's, and so I'm going to keep this for myself and live differently than Jesus calls, to me, calls me to in this or in that or these other things. I believe in Jesus, sure, but I'm not giving him all of me. So, see, there's a difference. There's, there's flat-out rejection of Jesus, sure, but we, we too can have this selective rejection of Jesus where we compartmentalize him and say, no, 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 not this part of my life, Lord. It's mine. But listen, Jesus wants that part too. He wants that part too. To truly be Jesus' disciples, we don't keep things in the dark that can um, fester and grow. We don't keep parts of our lives apart from Jesus because by recognizing that when we surrender that part of our lives to Jesus, it's actually for our good, for our joy. It will be far better to surrender all of life to Jesus than to keep things back. And so just as Judas went and left immediately after taking this morsel of bread, John notes that it was night. And there's a little bit of poetry to that. Judas betrays Jesus and then he walks out into the dark. What's stunning about this is that, that it seems like John, the gospel writer, is leaning up against Jesus on Jesus' right, and I would wager a guess that Judas is sitting at Jesus' left because he's able to hand him the morsel of bread very easily without getting up. They're all around on cushions on the ground, essentially, at a low table. He's able to hand him the morsel. Judas at the Last Supper, was sitting in a seat of honor and to be given the morsel of bread is kind of to give this choice bite. It's like when we get a Jim's pizza box and there's the bun in the middle. Judas got the bun in the middle. So now we understand what we're talking about, okay? What an honor. What an honor. Uh, and so Jesus, in one of these final interactions with Judas, is actually looking on him with love. He's seated him at a place of honor. He hands him the choice morsel of bread. And Judas remains hard-hearted, doesn't get soft-hearted towards Jesus, remains hard-hearted and goes off into the darkness. See, the challenge for us is to recognize that with our selective rejections of Christ, there are far more temptations that lead us into danger. They call us into the dark rather than, than into the light. But I want you to recognize the posture of Jesus even in the midst of your sin, in the midst of those places. He's not calling you to boot you out into the darkness. He's inviting you. He's giving you an invitation, a seat of honor, and calling you to the table of friendship and love. Jesus wants all of you, every part. May we not be those who reject our Savior. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There's a few things going on here. Let me unpack them. When it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. He's talking about the cross. The cross is imminent. The cross is coming. Jesus is preparing his disciples. When it comes, I want you to know, I'm telling you now so that you might believe that I am he. He's using the great I am language that the gospel of John refers to multiple times. This I am statement um, really equates Jesus with God. It's a way of referring to God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, I am. And Jesus is identifying himself yet again as 
God. And he's saying that when I go to the cross, don't worry, it's not over. I'm telling you this now so you believe then when all seems lost that I am he, I am God, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the great I am. And then in verse 20, he's essentially saying, whoever receives the one I send receives me. When I send out my disciples, Jesus is saying, and you bring the message about me, the gospel to people, when I send you out and they receive you and the message you bring, they receive me. And if they are those who receive me, they receive the Father. They receive God. That is why I came. This is really what Jesus' mission was. Jesus came to us so that we could be brought to God. That was his purpose. That's why he came. Whoever receives the one I send receives the one who sent me. Jesus came so we could come to God. The mission of Jesus was to come to us. And because his disciples represent him to the world, our mission becomes his mission. Making Jesus known as Savior and Lord, right? That rescuer, master of our lives. The God who came to save. John elaborates on this a little bit more in John 20, verse 21, where he says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Just as I was sent to accomplish the mission that God had for me, so I am sending you out as my followers, as disciples, to the mission that I've called you to go to. This is a simplification of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, and I'm with you always to the end of the age, because where you're going and making disciples, I'm in that. I'm with you. I won't abandon you there, because that's why I called you to be my disciples. So you could go and share the good news. I will be with you as you go about that, because you are going about what I have called you to and my ministry. We do this individually and corporately. We do this as individuals and we do this as the church. Recognize that Judas is leaving the room. He's going out into the darkness and Jesus is huddling the 11 disciples now at this point and he's saying this to them. This is for them. And 10 of those 11 will go on to be martyred, will be killed for the cause of the gospel. 10 of the 11 left in the room would be killed. Peter, for example, um, he would be crucified on a cross like Jesus was, but he didn't consider being crucified. He didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified on a cross because that's how Jesus died. And who is he to die a death like Christ? So he requested that they crucify him upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to die the way my Savior died. Ten of the eleven died through martyrdom. One didn't. John the Gospel writer. John the beloved disciple. But he was exiled to the island of Patmos. So he was an exiled prisoner. And he, that was his form of suffering for the gospel. And that's where he received the revelation that we have at the end of the book of the Bible. That last book of the Bible, Revelation, um, that John received well exiled on the island of Patmos. The mission of Jesus became the mission of his apostles. And these individuals gave their lives to the cause of the gospel. And through them, it became the mission of the church. Individuals on mission, gathering the church, building the church. Then the corporate call of the disciple, mission of the disciples as a church body is nonetheless the same. It goes on and on and on. So corporately as a church, we here at Central, we talk about our mission statement. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow him. That's why we exist. We exist so that we can be the kinds of disciples of Jesus who make more disciples. That's our, that's our reason for being. We want to grow as disciples, being baptized and teaching, growing up in discipleship, and also making more disciples. That's our purpose because that's what Jesus called us to. We want people, other people, to encounter Jesus that they may encounter the living God we want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. See Peter Wagner, a, a noted missiologist who, who, who would look at um, things like revivals and missionary endeavors and, and the rise of, of, of Christianity and things like that and study those things, said this, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. This isn't um, a 
This isn't an opinion. He's stating this as fact, as observable fact. Planting new churches is the most evangelistic methodology known under heaven. In other words, the most profitable, most consistent, best way to reach people with the gospel is to plant new churches, period. Because a group of people give their lives to being a witness and gathering in a particular place, and it tends to reach those particular people. Where establishes, established churches um, exist, what tends to happen is that the sphere of influence shrinks because there's a system, there's a, there's a building, there's structures, and so therefore we think, this thing will fly, it doesn't even really need me. But where you go on frontier missionary work to plant a church, people are sharing Jesus, inviting them into the community of faith, letting them observe their lives, serving, uh, looking at it like, like, like work, like a job, like their cause, and it is the most um, effective way to reach people. Now, I, I said last week, and we're going to keep talking about it every week all the way till April 23rd, and, um, that we uh, have something that we've been wanting to bring before you, which is this idea of expanding more campuses. Um, this wasn't really our thought so much as what God has been doing, but we are trying to get a sense together with you if, this, if the Lord is in this. And so what I said last week, and I'll say it again for those of you who might have missed it, the MB Conference, we're a Mennonite Brethren Church, and um, the BC Mennonite Brethren Conference approached us in the summer asking if we would consider taking on um, a little church that could use some revitalization, um, if we would take it on as a campus. It's called North Fraser Church, and it's between Mission and Agassiz, and it's the uh, only church in the region. The region is growing. Um, places are being built. Not only that, there's a lot of First Nations communities there, so opportunity to, to lovingly um, connect and minister and serve there as well. There's, there's no other church um, close. It's, the, the op it's an opportunity for the gospel to go out and for people to come to faith and to grow as disciples, and we've been asked to take it on. Presently, about 23 people meet there on a Sunday morning, this little building they have. And so we're praying about that and asking, is God asking us to plant a new church, a new campus, with the potential of reaching those who otherwise would not hear? At the same time, we've recognized that over the last three years, our children's ministry has grown every year, on average, about 17% every year for three years. So we've more than doubled um, um, our kids' ministry numbers. There's just we're maxed out on that side of the building right now. It's just packed rooms full of kids learning about Jesus, and we praise God for that. We're also constant, we have to ask the question naturally, though, that when you reach a max point is that you, you really leave no room for, for new people to feel welcome and engage and get connected. And so we're right on that line. And there's different things we could do and add a service and all those kinds of things, and we've talked a lot about that. But one thing that's really been on our hearts that's compelling is the idea of planting a campus across town with the potential of reaching people that we might otherwise not reach. Um, inviting a number of our families and individuals in this congregation to uproot from here and to go there, especially if you already live in that area, and to reach that area and have an impact on that area, alleviating some of the children's space needs here while also helping us reach people we otherwise might not. And so we're exploring that and ex invite you to explore that. But do you know what happens if all of these sorts of things were to take place? What would happen is that a large number of excellent people, and what typically happens, don't mishear the phrase, is that our best people go. Meaning that those who are just committed and they serve in like three areas and they're just like all over it and churches their world, they're like, yes, I'm in, and off they go, and it leaves this gaping hole here of, of needs. Um, I was talking to someone in the foyer uh, between services, and they said, we, can't, we started coming here about a year ago, and we looked around and we're like, this place has it together. They, they do everything, they, they, they seem like they've got it all covered, I wonder where they need anybody. That was just the sense that they felt. I was like, well, I could tell you like nine if you want to know. But, like, but there was just this, this sense that, oh, it's all covered. But see, what happens is that when you, when you go on mission and recognize the mission of disciples, both individually and corporately, and as you go, what happens is that there are those that actually go, and then there are those who remain who say, I need to get in, I need to... 
I need to get involved, I need to serve. And so what it does is it elevates everybody's um, involvement and the impact and the potential of what God could do. So look, we're not claiming to say this is absolutely like where God is leading. Let, come on, everyone. What we're saying is we want to be the kinds of disciples who make disciples. And the question we're asking is, is the Lord in this? In this next season, is he calling us to leverage what we've got to reach new places, new people? And we're asking you to pray. We're asking you to pray individually. We're asking you to pray corporately. We're, we're asking you to talk about it in your life groups and pray about it in your life groups. We're just asking you to lean into that. I met with a guy earlier this week because I'd asked people last week as well. I'd asked you to do that last week. And he took me out and he said, I dreamed about what you said, but just like a week earlier. I was like, should I tell Matt? I wonder if that was God. He didn't. And then once he heard me talk about it, he came up to me and he's like, yeah, we should do coffee and talk about this because I dreamed what you said before you did. I thought it was God. I was like, oh, that's crazy. Does God do that often? He's like, never in my life. He's like an older gentleman here. Okay. Look, look, look we're not going to go plant churches because a guy dreamed it. We're just not going to do it. But what we're asking is, would you pray about it? And then would you let us know? And would you come on April 23rd and listen to what God might be saying to us as a body? Because it'll take everybody. And so um, we're just asking you to consider that, to pray about it, to bring your wisdom. And we want to have a sense that as a church, we affirm this. And then we'll go there together. So uh, circle April 23rd on your calendar, 7 p.m. And we just want to lean into that as a church family. Let's move on. Let's trust God in that and um, keep praying about it and look to the future to see God work among us. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God glor is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Everybody got that? Okay, great. <laughs> Here's what these complicated couple of verses are saying. First of all, they're about God's glory. Let's define that. Glory, uh, I mean, we could talk about it in a few different ways, and we could talk about it for a very long time, but succinctly is the infinite worth of God on display. The infinite worth of God. He's so other. He's so much greater. He's really not even quantifiable, and yet his glory is this kind of glimpse of it, glimpse of God's greatness, grandeur, weightiness. The infinite worth of God on display is his glory. That's what Psalm 19 is talking about when it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Like when you catch a beautiful view and we catch so many of those in this part of the world, when you just see a stunning view and you go, that is amazing and it's breathtaking, whether you recognize it or not in that moment, you're catching a glimpse of the glory of God because it's his creation, he made it. So we're stunned by creation. That's just a little aspect of God's glory, this, this infinite worth on display of our God. And so what's being talked about in these couple of verses about that glory is this eternal relationship of the Trinity. Jesus is going to talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit in the coming chapters, but presently here it's just that father-son relationship. But what's being talked about here is this, that the fact that the Son is glorified by the Father and the Father is glorified by the Son. As Jesus glorifies the Father by going to the cross, God is glorified by that, and then God is his pleasure to bring glory to Christ because of it. And that's how this eternal and complicated relationship of the Trinity works. It speaks of the self-existence and total sufficiency of God existing eternally as one God in three persons. And one of the things that we should note about that is that that, that leaves God, this one God in three persons, not needy of anybody or anything. Because his infinite worth, he has this self existence, self-sufficiency, perfect love, and, and mutual glorification going on in the Trinity. He's not needing anything from us. But what's so astounding about God is that, you know, when Christ is most glorified, when he goes to the cross. Like we just sang the power of the cross. That would have made a, an ancient Roman laugh, like the power of the cross. That's a despicable death, the worst kind of death, a heinous death, a criminal's death, an embarrassing, humiliating death. The power of the cross? What are you talking about? But the cross was the greatest moment of Christ's displayed glory. The humiliating, shameful cross was also the site of triumph and glory for God. This is the God we serve, that the height of his glory 
is found in his sacrificial atoning death on a cross where sin was defeated so that we could be redeemed. What a loving and glorious God. But let's move on because we could talk about that for, for, for ages. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. That's not a, a diss. <laughs> it's, it's a loving term, little children. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Right? I have fulfilled the mission that God gave me, and now he's going to glorify me. But now I'm placing my mission upon you, that you may go out and it may set like wildfire across the earth. You cannot come yet. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, we've talked about the mission of a disciple. Let's talk about the mark of a disciple, because the text just told us what it is. Francis Schaeffer, a noted 20th century theologian, very impactful, especially in the 70s and around that time period, like the like the, the 1970s, not 70s. But the 1970s, very influential. A lot of the talk about worldview that we do is really attributed to Francis Schaeffer. He talked a lot about um, apologetics with, with philosophy and reasons for our faith and right, intelligent response, all that kind of stuff. But he wrote a little book, one of his lesser-known books is called The Mark of a Christian. And in The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer refers to these few verses and says something very helpful. In John 13, the point was that, which we just read, if an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he's not a Christian. Here Jesus is stating something else which is more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. That there is actually a distinguishable mark of Christians that the world can see. That they can actually look in and say, no, they're not. Yes, they are. The distinguishable mark is their observable love. What Schaefer is saying is that there is a distinguishable mark of the Christian, an attribute observable to others, and that is this, love for brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to say, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. Yes, we need to do that work. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. What he's saying is none of our activities are like evangelism, social justice ministry, missions work, worldview work, will be as compelling and impactful if they are not guided by the final apologetic of demonstrating observable love for one another. I love that he phrases it that way. That's what the final apologetic is in the Christian faith. An apologetic is, is really just this um, way of a reasoned defense of the faith that challenges other worldviews that exist. So many people view the dif world differently than Christians, and an apologetic is to, to give the Christian worldview response. Or as the Apostle Paul or Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Francis Schaeffer saying the final apologetic, it's not super heady. It's just, do you love each other? in a demonstrable way. That's the final apologetic. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. So let's talk about that. What's new about that? What's interesting is that Jesus said that we're or in the word of God, we see in Deuteronomy way back that we are to love God with everything we've got. And in Leviticus, we see that we're to love our neighbors. And so what's new about this call to love God and others? Well, the part that's new, because Jesus says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, the part that's new is that we're supposed to love just as Jesus loved us. He's about to go to the cross. Let's, let's look at, for a moment, what this love of Jesus is like. Think about the love of Jesus towards you. 
Think about the incarnation, which is Christmas, that Jesus came. Think about that. It reveals that there was no distance that Jesus would not go to love you. There was no distance Jesus would not travel to love you. And he says, just as I've loved you, you are to love one another. No distance you would not travel to love. Think about the cross where Jesus displays that no suffering and sacrifice, that there was no suffering and sacrifice he was not willing to make to love us. He bled love. So in his sufferings, in his sacrifice, he went to extremes and he says, love like I love. There's no distance he would not travel, love like I love. Look at his generosity. No person too lost or too bad to forgive, heal, set free, adopt, in love. Nobody. He's so generous with his love. And he says, love like that, that there's no person too lost, too bad, that you cannot love them as I've loved you. I think like a year and a half ago now or so, we did a sermon series called uh, One Anothering, partially because it's just fun to make up words. But um, it was just really about a lot of the one another um, verses in, in the New Testament. And when it says these one another verses in the New Testament, it's actually telling Christians to, to do these things to one another, for one another. It's a way of the church being the church, these one another statements in the New Testament. And the one that's overarching is love one another. And from there, all the other one another's are aspects of loving one another. Let me just explain a couple to you, remind you of a couple, share them with you. Be hospitable to one another was one of the statements. See, look, when we look at it through the lens of the gospel, we see Jesus reveals his love for us who were far off and who were hopeless and distant from God by bringing us near and welcoming us in. A life that has been touched by the hospitality of Jesus freely and quickly extends hospitality to others. Jesus was hospitable to us, and then he says, now be hospitable to one another. That's the way in which we love like Jesus. He said, another one is bear one another's burdens. Look, Jesus bore our sin on the cross, a weight that we could never deal with on our own. We need saving. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. How can we not bear the lesser burdens of others when he calls us to bear one another's burdens? It's a way that we, the church, can love one another Jesus goes on, forgive one another, he declares. The record of debt that stood against every Christian is too great to ever pay. And he's paid the cost, his death on the cross. And in light of such forgiveness, such grace, we're able to forgive others from the heart. That, that when he says forgive one another, we just look to Jesus and this, how much he's forgiven us. And he says, okay, I can, I can actually forgive over here, this lesser thing. The Apostle Paul referred him to himself as the chief of all sinners. And he meant it. And a lot of times what we think of when, G when Paul's saying, I'm the worst of all sinners, we think, oh, well, it's because he was like persecuting Christians. He was really, really bad. He was persecuting Christians. That's why he was the worst of all Christians. And sure, I think there's a, there's a level of, I mean, that stuff's bad. That's, that's not great. Uh, but, but I think that the main reason why he could say that he was the chief of all sinners is because he knew his heart like he knew no one else's. And, and I so relate to that. I mean, the, the, what I recognize most is my own sin. So I see my sin every day. I recognize it. I'm aware of my sinfulness. And then I have a chat with somebody and they're sharing an aspect of their life in an area of sin. And I go, okay, so you've got that one that you're letting me in on. I'm aware of some sin in your life, but I, I know all my sin. So I know one of yours. <laughs> I know all of mine. And with that kind of a posture, were I able to all say like the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. But Jesus in grace came and he forgave me. And then he says, forgive one another. So we look at the thing that's been done against us and we say, well, I've been forgiven this much. How can I not forgive this much? So this is part of the call of loving one another in these distinct ways that where, where the culture kind of comes to the end of something and says, okay, I can go this far, but not any farther. The Christian community never does that because Jesus has always gone further than we ever could. And so we're able to go farther and farther in love and bearing burdens and encouraging each other and being hospitable to each other and forgiving each other and loving each other because Jesus is saying, do it like I've done. And it's so much greater than we ever could repay. I want to encourage you for a minute, Central. I, one of the great privileges of my role here at the church is that I get to, I get to hear often, regularly, every week about really cool things that God's doing among us through you. 
through the ways that you love one another well. I hear stories that astound me. I wish I could tell many of them, but a lot of them are your private stories that, that I don't have the freedom and liberty to share, but, but sometimes you share them with me, and I'm so thankful because what I hear is astounding love for one another, countercultural love for one another, and I hear it often, just in a kind of a generic way. Um, I'm just I'm blown away by our community care team who... Um, do visitation that ensure that everybody who's unable to attend church, whether they're in a care home or the hospital, that whatever it is, they'll go and visit them and oftentimes share communion with them. They'll, they'll pray with them and just be there to be an encouragement that the people who cannot come are getting loved so well by this team of volunteers that just love to go where nobody notices it, but just bless and love our family of faith. I hear often from those in life groups, and especially when they're going through crisis, and, and, and sometimes I'll approach them and say, hey, what can we do? How can I help? And they'll say, oh, it's okay. My life group's got it covered. They're amazing. What I hear is that the, the community in so many of our life groups is so great, especially our life group leaders, just caring for those in their groups so well that when crisis hits somebody in the life group, half the time that, that stuff doesn't even get all the way to us because oh, we're, we're taken care of. We're so loved. It's all good. They're bringing us meals. They're helping us out. They're praying for us. They're, we feel so supported. Oh, that's amazing. This church love one another so well. I think of needs quietly being met that many of us never hear about but exist. So I want you to hear that. That exists. Incredible things about your love for one another are happening. I want to give us a challenge as well, though, also to say that there are great lengths that we can go, nonetheless, to continue to be the kind of counterculture that the early church was. Whereas the cultures, right, putting the sick out on the street, the church are out on the street and bringing them in. Whatever the comparable is of such a love, such a countercultural, stunning, vibrant, costly, selfless love that so confuses and compels those who are not a part of the family of faith. And they say, I want to be a part of that. One of the greatest examples I've heard of that in, in recent years is when Pastor Eldon's mom had cancer a number of years ago and her little community group came over to her house to pray for her, to pray for her healing and to love on her and to encourage her. And, and one of the guys in the group it seems odd to me, but it's a beautiful thing. It brought a friend who wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ along to the time of prayer for the woman in their community group who had cancer. And so he came along and he was there. And what he observed that night was a community of people who prayed and cried and asked that God would heal. And if, his not, if not, that his will would be done nonetheless. And they just, he, this man who was sitting there looked at the love they had for one another and didn't care whether she'd get healed or not in terms of evidence. What he was seeing was if you are the, if the church is like that, then I'm in. Because he saw a group that loved each other in a way that he had never found in any kind of community anywhere before. And he gave his life to the Lord. I'm the kind of preacher, and I think it's, I think it, I hope that it's, it's the way of, of faithful preaching. I believe that it is, is that we have to share bad news. It's not all good. We have to share the bad news in order for the gospel to be good news. We have to know how bad and how in need we are in order to recognize that we need salvation and how sweet grace is. That's the, that's the way it works. And I think that that works in this scenario as well. For us to truly be a loving community that love counterculturally in stunning ways, costly ways, I think we have to do some of the work of actually just in looking in for a moment and addressing some of the bad news in our hearts. So I'm going to invite us to a time of repentance here as we begin to close. An opportunity for repentance. Look, every great renewal movement of the church kind of just setting up a flame growing or revival where people who don't know Jesus, every single one in all of history began with a group of people who prayed together and people who repented. That's how every renewal movement happens. And we need to make that a regular diet in our Christian lives, a diet of repentance and faith, turning to Jesus for grace. We need to do that. In order to be a loving community, some of us need to repent of unforgiveness. Some of us do. Some of us are so unforgiving and have been for so long that we are becoming so bitter 
that people can sniff it from a mile away and there's no opportunity for the fragrance of the gospel to have an impact because bitterness is the scent, not love. A lack of forgiveness. Look, if it's been years that you've been holding on to unforgiveness of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, that, that, that repentance from them that, that you're hoping will come may never come. What I encourage you to do if you're holding on to unforgiveness is to bring it to the Lord today and say, enough. I will not continue to be an unforgiving person. I will not continue to hold this over that person. I will not hang on to this anymore. I'm going to forgive no matter what they do because of Christ's forgiveness towards me. I'm going to be forgiving and to let that go. We talked this, this fall when we talked about marriage we talked about the fact that what God gives us, it's a gift in marriages for a spouse who really stands like a mirror against, uh, in front of us so that all of our sin is like mirrored back to us. They just, our spouses, like that's just the way it works is they, 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 just, they help us see what maybe we couldn't see before, which is the reality of our sin. And that sanctifies us, that we can see it and grow in it. That, that God brings growth into our lives by having a loving spouse who points out our sin and love, and we're able to grow in that. In the same way, the difficult relationships in church that we avoid or where there's some landmine there because there's unforgiveness, those people in the same way by being the family together, being the church together, loving one another in that context where it's difficult also sanctifies us. That we would choose to love rather than avoid in the context of Christian community and forgive. Just love well, even where it's difficult, because God uses that for our growth, and it's a beautiful display of the gospel. Some of us need to repent of our detachment from the body of Christ, where we have professed faith in Jesus, but have no observable example of ever having loved the church. Some of us here, the reality is, yes, we've We've surrendered our lives to Christ in a sense, but we haven't grafted ourselves into the church family. Jesus says, the people in the world will know that you're disciples of me if you have love for one another, and we haven't even set down roots. We, ha- we have this detachment from the body of Christ where there's no opportunity. There's never been an observable opportunity for people to see our selfless love on display to brothers and sisters in Christ because we're t- at an arm's length. And some of us need to repent of our detachment from the body of Christ. Some of us need to repent of our disproportionate concern over our own comforts and private lives, over and above our concerns for brothers and sisters in Christ, which is, by the way, a departure from the rich history of the church. It is so easy to just get locked into our own creature comforts, our own good. I can't help that person. It will cost me and change the way that my life is lived. Christ is calling us to do precisely that, for it to cost us, because that display, in that costing, that's how the love of Christ is put on display to a watching world. Some of us need to repent for only loving those whose theology lands precisely in the same camp, precisely the same tribe or denomination as us. Some of us need to repent of the fact that we have made the community of all believers so, so narrow that if somebody disagrees with us on a secondary issue, we have no love for them. That is not a mark of the church. A mark of the church is when we disagree on secondary things that are not salvation issues, and we look towards one another in charity and love for the building up of that brother and sister in Christ. Some of us need to repent for only loving those whose theology lands precisely in the same place as ours. So we're going to take communion in a few moments and it'll be an opportunity to maybe just sit and to dwell. Maybe I haven't touched on an area where where maybe you need to turn from in order to be loving as Christ has loved you towards your church family. I recognize that, look, through busyness and the question of what should I do or how could this look, I just invite you not to overcomplicate it, right? We think, okay, what are the things that I'm going to go about to just turn and love, turn and love, where there's opportunity to pour yourself out, do it in Christian love very encouraged by a story I heard recently about J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is one of the most noted theologians of our time. He was a professor at Regent Seminary in Vancouver for a number of years. He's getting way up there in years. He wrote a phenomenal book called Knowing God, which is a staple um, uh, in this past century. He's one of the um, scholars who worked on the ESV Bible, which is what we make use of here uh, primarily. 
a, just a noted theologian, and, and he had such a busy schedule because he'd speak to crowds, and he taught classes, and he wrote books, and he recognized at a certain point that his ministry to his own congregation as a member of his congregation in his church in Vancouver, he, just, he, he began to ask, how, how can I practically love, I'm a busy guy, how can I love my church family well? And so his ministry became, it was, he just quietly went, it, went about doing this, was that he would go and visit those suffering in debilitating ways with depression in his church. So those who had debilitating depression at his church would get a knock on the door every once in a while from J.I. Packer. And he'd say, get dressed. Let's go for a walk. And they'd walk around the seawall or something. And he'd talk with them and encourage them and love them, pray for them. He just ensured, this is, this is the way that I love my congregation. Got all this other work. It's great, noted work. But when no one else is looking, I'm quietly knocking on the doors of those who are facing such dark seasons. And I just want to give them hope. I just want to pray for them. And he'd walk with them, encourage them. I invite you, Central, can we be the kind of church where at every turn we see somebody paying a price to love? That we count the cost of the weight of the cross and we count it and we say, yeah, it's my joy, I'll take this on. And we turn our face towards loving people the way Christ has loved us. I already see it and I just marvel at the opportunity that would come from a church that just en masse gave ourselves to laying lives down and loving well. Would you do that with me? We are going to take communion here. And again, the primary thing I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus paid it all. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus went further than we're suggesting you go. His command for you to go is he went so far to save. If you believe that, that Jesus came to save you, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, we invite you to respond over the course of a couple of songs coming up here. Respond by coming up and receiving communion, which is the body of Christ broken for you, the bread, and the blood of Christ shed for you, the cup. If you believe that, just come and receive that. Jesus said, keep doing this. Keep remembering. Keep the gospel at the forefront. Keep taking this meal together, believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and then going out as my followers. We'll also have um, prayer team members in different parts of the room. If you're already up to receive communion, you're welcome to just slip to different parts of the room and pray. I'm going to invite, yeah, the band come up, a prayer team, our communion servers. And let's spend a few moments in prayer. I want to remind you as well, you may want to sit and linger for a few minutes if there's something on your heart to repent of before God so that you can turn towards Him and the church in love. Let's pray together and then let's spend some time in response. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. You are not asking anything of us that you have not infinitely done more for us. So first of all, Lord, we say thank you. We praise you for the cross. We praise you for your grace. We cannot exhaust it. Your grace is sufficient. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you gift us this helper to come in the Holy Spirit to indwell inside of us and that as we turn our hearts towards the mission you call us to, oh, Lord, you fan that flame because that's precisely what you desire from us. So, Lord, in light of the gospel, make us a gospel people more and more. Would you do that, Lord? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.